Now we are going to jump back in um, to the book of Job. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles handy, go ahead and open up. We're going to be all over the place today. Um, just heads up, FYI. But we are going to spend the majority of our time in uh, Job's chapter 13 and a little bit in 23. There's a professor, a uh, preaching professor at Harvard University, uh, and, and he, he tells the story of his uh, kindergarten-age son. Yeah, I'm on. His kindergarten-age son, and his kindergarten-age son um, did what kindergartners do at school. They made Christmas gifts for their parents. Uh, any of you, when you were little, or do your kids, they make like the, the clay gifts. I got a bunch of these things. We're, we're packing up, right? Like, and I don't know, am I supposed to take them? Like, I mean, I don't even know what they are. Like, I think one's supposed to be a fish. Uh, there's another set that I think is waffles. I don't know. We got them, though. And, and what are you going to do? You're going to keep them. You're not going to get rid of them. Uh, but... Uh, but, but this, this uh, kindergartner was so excited because he'd never done anything like this before. And, and so he made this creation for his dad for a Christmas present. So, so some, some pinching and, and putting it together and, and some of that. And, and then there's some glitter and, and some paint and, and some time in the kiln. And it didn't look like anything in particular, but it was ready to go. And finally, like this was like three or four months in the making... Finally, it's the day of the big Christmas party and Christmas concert at school. So all the parents come, and he has, he's wrapped it up. He's tied it with a bow. He's so excited. He can barely contain himself to give this thing to his dad that he's worked so stinking hard on. The concert's over. The party's over. And they're getting ready to go, and he grabs it, and he's running. You know where this is going, right? He, he's running. Uh, from the table where all of the treasures were to where his parents are sitting in the cafeteria. And he trips, and he falls, and it shatters. And like everyone is silent because everybody understands the magnitude of what that gift cost that little boy and how excited he was to give it. And he just falls on the ground broken. Tears, weeping uncontrollably uh, because he can't imagine anything else possibly um, having cost so much, and it's so devastating. And uh, the parents run over and, and um, want to console him, but, but the father, I mean, this, he's a professor at Harvard, and this is uncomfortable because his son is crying and everybody is staring. And so doing the best he can, here's what he does. He pats him on the head, and he says, that's okay. It doesn't really matter. And of course, the mother stares daggers at him and says, it absolutely does matter. And she proceeds to sit on the ground with him and cry with him. Until eventually he's all cried out. And she says, okay, let's pick up the pieces and see what we might salvage. And they take it home and 
turns out with a hot glue gun and, and some special sparkly mom magic, uh, they were able to take the pieces and turn it into a butterfly uh, that he was able to present his dad on Christmas morning, and it was a far better gift um, than it was initially. And as he tells the stories, as it, it's still sitting on his desk, and it forever has as just a reminder of a couple of things. Here's the reminder. Here's why we bother with the story. Grief is real. Loss hurts. And to act like it doesn't is absurd. Grief is real. If you've had grief and pain in your life, if you've lost something, if, if you have struggled with sincere, deep pain, it's real. But a lot of us, a lot of us, what we try to do is we try to act like that dad, right? The pat on the head, it's okay, it's no big deal. It doesn't really matter, right? Because we don't really want to acknowledge it. We're afraid that if we acknowledge it, something bad will happen, right? If we acknowledge it, then, then somehow we're um, prolonging it, or if we acknowledge it, that somehow we're making it heavier, or if we acknowledge our pain and grief, somehow we're saying something bad about God. Somehow we're painting him in a way that we shouldn't. But, but here's the deal. Grief is real. Loss hurts. And it needs to be acknowledged. It deserves to be acknowledged. You deserve to acknowledge it. But then here's the truth, and this is what we're discovering as we walk through Job, and it's part of what we talked about last week. Out of great loss, out of great loss, great beauty can and will eventually emerge. That's the promise. That's the promise that God gives us, and that's what we see Job struggling with. And Job is struggling, right? Like, like Job is, is struggling something serious. Let's look here. Here's what he says in Job 6. If my misery could be weighed and my troubles be put on the scales, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. That is why I spoke impulsively. Right? For the Almighty has struck me down with his arrows. Their poison infects my spirit. God's tares are lined up against me. Don't I have a right to complain? This is Job, right? Job is feeling his grief and his misery and his hurt so acutely that he just needs to sit in it for a minute. That's all he needs. He just needs to sit in it for a minute. And, and, and sometimes, listen, sometimes so do we. Sometimes we just have to sit in it for a minute. And it's not bad and it's not wrong. Sometimes our pain and our grief have to be acknowledged. Job is acknowledging his and he goes on, and in chapter 7, he says, Is not all human life a struggle? Our lives are like that of a hired hand, like a worker who longs for the shade, like a servant waiting to be paid. I, too, have been assigned months of futility, long and weary nights of misery. Lying in bed, I think, when will it be morning? But the night drags on, and I toss till dawn. My body is covered with maggots and scabs. My skin breaks open, oozing with pus. It's kind of graphic, I know. But Job is in it. 
Job is in it, and, and it's okay that he's in it, and he just is living there. Here's the problem. When we live there, though, when we just sit in our grief, here's what we are tempted to do. We're tempted to wallow. And so somehow Job here, and and we're going to see this as we get further into the text, Job is learning what it means to have grief and to acknowledge his despair and to live in his hurt while at the same time having hope. See, because what happens is in the world, we start to think that those things are counterproductive. We start to think that those things fight each other, that if we acknowledge our hurt, that somehow we're not having hope. But the truth is, and we learn this in Scripture, that we can actually do both at once. We can acknowledge our hurt, and we can be in our grief and still have hope. And I know many of you, I know many of you have struggled with that very same thing. Because your grief feels overwhelming. Because when we lose, sometimes we lose big. And so we wake up and, and, and we, we look in the mirror, or even worse, we don't wake up, we just get up because we've laid in bed all night thinking it over and over and over again, and sleep is elusive. what do we do? Right? We get up the next day and we do it again. And we struggle with this. And why do we struggle with it? We struggle with it because we have a hard time believing that there's any way we can make a butterfly out of it. Because all we see in the moment are the broken pieces scattered across the floor. And we don't think there's anything we can possibly do with that mess that's going to be okay. And the reality is this. There is nothing you can do with that mess that's going to make it okay. But we can have hope. Because there is a God in heaven who has made promises. Here's what Paul has said through the Holy Spirit here in Romans. Yet what we suffer now, because we will suffer now, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that, will, uh, that he will reveal to us later. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he is going to reveal in us. And we know, he says just a few verses later, we know that God causes everything that happens, all of the bad, all of the hurt, all of the grief, all of the misery, that God causes all of that to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to their purposes. See, what God is promising in his word is not that bad, hard, sorrow, grief, despair, not that those things won't happen. In fact, he promises that they will. He promises that they'll happen. But what he's saying to you is when they do happen, acknowledge it, sit in it, feel it acutely, mourn and grieve. And then he says to the church body, mourn with those who mourn. Grieve with those who grieve. Don't let them do it alone, but sit on the floor and cry with them over the broken pieces. But always have hope. But always have hope. And this is what we see Job expressing in a roundabout way. We're going to look at it here in Job 13. 
Um, in Job 13, um, we see that Job is expressing to his friends despair. And just when it feels like he's about to go off the deep end, he comes back with a statement of great hope. And he's going to do that now. And he's going to do it again in chapter 23. So let's go ahead and take a look together. Um, Job 13, 1 and 2. He says, look, I've seen all this with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears, and now I understand. I know as much as you do, but you are no better than I am. And, and so you're like, who's he talking to there? He's talking to his friends. He's saying, I've seen this, I've heard all of this, and, and you're not better than I am. I know as much as you do. And, and so what's happened is Job, in his despair, is, is questioning God. Now, he's not questioning God in a sinful way, but he's questioning God as a why. Why did this have to happen? What in the world is going on? Why did I lose my children? Why did I lose my possessions? Why am I covered with pussy sores and boils? Why, God? Why? I've been good. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've followed you. I've been obedient. I'm not like those godless people. I have done what you've put in front of me. Why did this happen? And his pain is overwhelming. And in his overwhelming grief, Job has three good buddies. And they get a bad rap. If you've read the book of Job, you know his friends, they're kind of annoying. But they get a bad rap. They mean well. Look, look, look what we see about them in, in Job chapter 2. Three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he'd suffered. They got together. They traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. I mean, that's a decent friend thing to do. They heard what had happened and they wanted to go to him. So they traveled to him to comfort and console him. And then they see him. While they're still a long ways off, they see Job and they see his misery and his pain and it breaks them. They tear their robes. They cover themselves in ashes and they go and what do they do? They sit with him. They don't talk, not for a while. They just sit there. What does it say? Seven days and nights. And no one said a word because they saw that the suffering was too great for words. These friends get a bad rap, but man, their hearts are in it for Job. Their hearts are in it for Job. They just make an easy mistake that we all make. What they've assumed is they've assumed that these things are happening to Job because somehow... He has offended God. See, that's the assumption that the friends make. Their intention is good. They want to go. They want to comfort Job. They want to help Job. But instead of just sitting with him um, over the long haul, instead of just comforting him, they start to try to fix it for him. They start to try to help it for him. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right? When you do that with your wife, right? And she doesn't want you to fix her problem. She just wants you to listen. Just let her feel her feelings. I mean, this is a conversation I've had at my house a lot, right? And I'm like, well, that sounds weird. Let me fix that for you so you can think differently about that. Um, and that doesn't work either. 
But here's what happens, right? So it's this idea that instead of just sitting with him in, in, in the tension and the pain, they start to try to fix it. And their assumption is, Job, if God did this to you, he did it for a good reason. And it's because you have secret sin in your life. So this is what they're telling him. Job, just confess your sins to God and he will relent. He'll forgive you. And all of this will stop. And Job says, I don't have any sin in my life. And they're like, you're a liar. Because Job wouldn't do this unless you were causing him uh, grief, unless you were sinning against him. God would never do these things to you. And so this is where Job speaks up then. Um, Job speaks up. He says, as for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. As for you, and he's talking to his friends, you're smearing me with lies. You're saying I'm harboring secret sin in my life. You're saying I'm doing all of these wrong things. But I'm not doing these wrong things. He says, you're smearing lies about me. I want to argue my case to God. As physicians, love this one, as physicians, you're worthless quacks. You think you're helping, but you're not helping. You're hurting. If only you could be silent, that's the wisest thing you could do. So Job telling his friends, like, you think you're helping? You ain't helping. If you were like a doctor, you would be a worthless quack. Job's looking at them and saying, the smartest thing you could do, the thing that would be most helpful for me right now, is if you would just shut up. And that feels extra harsh. It feels extra harsh, but Job's pain is acute, and he knows. He knows that there's nothing between him and God. He knows that this calamity has come because God put it on him, and all he wants to do right now is sit in it and maybe have God tell him why. But the friends have decided they know why. They think it's because Job made a mistake. Now listen, I want to be careful here. Sometimes our pain does come. Because there's sin in our life that God's trying to deal with. We call that discipline. Hebrews talks about it. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. Like, there is something very real about the discipline of God. And so sometimes, listen carefully, you got to let me pastor you for a few more weeks. Sometimes, that's that trial, that calamity, that difficulty in your life, sometimes that is a result of your sin. Not always, but sometimes. Think about the prodigal son. Right? Hardship upon hardship upon hardship came upon the prodigal son. And guess what? It was all a result of his sinfulness. Because God was increasing the pressure. God was increasing the pain that the prodigal son had to deal with so that he would come to his senses and return home from the distant country. That's discipline. God's discipline is real. Sometimes, listen, sometimes when you are struggling in your life and there are pressures and things that are pushing in on you, Sometimes that is God's way of getting your attention so that you will say yes to holiness and no to ungodliness. Sometimes in your life you are harboring sin. You have become friends with sin. 
You've invited sin in. Took it out for coffee. You decided that you liked it and that you should see each other on the regular. How do we say it? They're going steady. I don't think people say that anymore. Right? Now they're, now they're hanging out. You're hanging out with your sin. I, it is a generational thing, right? Like, I think my parents went steady, right? Like, that's a thing. And then when I was a kid, we were going out. Where are you going? No, no, we're going out. We're not going anywhere, right? But we're going out. And now, now they hang out. What are you doing? We're hanging out, okay? doesn't matter. That's what you're doing with your sin. Some of you are doing that with your sin, and you know it. And so you can't, you can't, I said this last week, I'm going to say it now, you ain't Job, right? You can't sit there and say, the hand of God is heavy upon me, and I don't know why, and I have no explanation for what's going on. Well, it, it, it's because you're looking at porn, right? And so that's going to happen, right? Well, why is this happening? Well, it's, it's because you're stealing, right? And, and God is trying to get your attention. It's because I'm neglecting my family, and God is trying to move you back this way. Sometimes, there is sin in your life, and God's discipline will come on you so that you will have to, that you'll have to deal with it, and you'll have to cut it out of your life, and that you'll choose holiness instead of ungodliness. Sometimes that's true. Not always. Sometimes, there are other things that happen, and we just don't know why. So, when you're facing difficulties, here, here's my advice to you. The first thing you want to do is you want to ask, God, what's going on? Search my heart, oh God. See if there's any wickedness in me that needs to be confessed. Show me my heart, God. Show me if there's sin that needs to be dealt with. And if there is, then might I pastorally suggest that you deal with it that you confess it to God, maybe even to someone else, that you repent, that you turn from it. But sometimes it's not about sin. Remember in John 9, remember in John 9, they bring Jesus a blind guy. And the first question they asked him is, Jesus, who sinned? This guy's blind, so who sinned, him or his parents? Remember Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is nobody sinned. Right? He's not blind because of sin. He's blind so that the glory of God can be shown in his life. Sometimes it's discipline. Oftentimes it's something else. So you are right to say, and your friends might be right to ask you, hey, check your heart. What's happening? And if there's something there to confess it, but it isn't always as black and white as that. And Job's saying, look, as for me, man, I want to talk directly to God because I am innocent. So you guys telling his friends, stop talking to me. Stop it. Here's the thing. They don't. They keep talking for like another 20 chapters. And it gets, actually 30 chapters. And it gets kind of annoying. If you've ever read the book of Job, you're like, why won't they just stop talking? I don't know. Um, because they won't. But then Job says this, listen to my charge. He's still talking to his friends here. He's like, listen to my charge, right? Pay attention to my arguments. You're defending God with lies. Do you make your dishonest arguments for his sake, right? Will you slant your testimony in his favor? Are you arguing God's case for him? Basically what he's saying to them is, you aren't the judge. 
Stop acting like you are. Job is saying to his friends, listen, this is between me and God, right? Nobody asked you to be the judge between God and I. He's like, I don't need you to judge between God and I. I'm going to go talk to God directly, right? Because he's the one that I need to talk to. You guys are just lying. They're lying. You're, he's like, you're lying in God's favor. You're, you're twisting testimony. You're slanting evidence in God's favor because what they're saying is, Job, you're a dirty, terrible sinner, and you're hiding it. And so that's why God's doing these things. And so we're on God's side because God is clearly punishing you for your sin. And Job's saying, stop it. You're just lying. Nobody asked you to be judged between God and I. This has nothing to do with my sin. It's the point he's making. And he's like, and listen, what would happen when he finds out what you're doing? What happens when he finds out what you're doing and how you're acting? Can you fool him as easily as you fool people? It's like, no, you got problems too. And and you think that you can fool everybody else, but you can't fool God. What happens when you come face to face with him? Doesn't the majesty, doesn't his majesty terrify you? Doesn't your fear of him overwhelm you? Your platitudes are as valuable as ashes. Your defense is as fragile as a clay pot. But, and this is this great thing here. He says, so be silent now. Leave me alone. Let me speak. I'm going to face the consequences. Why should I put myself in mortal danger and take my life in my own hands? He's asking a question. He's like, I'm going to talk to God. He's like, and if I'm wrong, then I'm taking my life into my own hands. He's like, I want to walk right into the presence of God, and I want to defend myself to him. That's what I want to do. Is what he's telling his friends. He's like, you're, you're being bad judges. Knock it off. Just be quiet. Be silent. That's the wisest thing you could do. As for me, I want to walk right into the throne room of God. And I want to defend my integrity. And he's like, look, man, I'll face the consequences. He's like, why would I put myself and t- take my life into my own hands? This is Job saying, listen, trust my integrity. He's saying, look, why would I... Why would I go to God and say I'm innocent if I'm not? That would be foolish and dangerous. And he says this, great statement of hope. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. But this is what will save me. I am not godless. If I were, I could not stand before him. So here's Job's whole point. Job's whole point is that he is in misery. And he is asking why. Right? His friends are telling him, Job, it's your own fault. It's because you're, you're not righteous. It's because you've got sin in your life that you refuse to acknowledge and refuse to admit. And Job says, no, 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 that's not what it is. I don't have that. Why would I go stand in front of God if I had secret sin in my life? That would be taking my life into my own hands. I would be risking everything. But I will stand before God. And though he slay me, yet I will have See, this is Job's great statement of hope. Even though the hand of God is heavy upon me, I will have hope. Why? Because he's my God. 
right? That's what he says, right? Why, do, why, Job? Why? Why do you think that you should have hope? Even though he's like, everything around you is telling you to give up hope, right? Your children are dead. Your treasure is gone. Your body is broken. Your friends are telling you that there's something wrong with you. Your wife is telling you to curse God and die. There is zero reason for hope. But Job says, though he slay me, though these things are happening to me, even though God's hand is heavy upon me, yet I will have hope. Why? Because he's my God. Because I am not godless. Right? You read, I'm not godless, and you think that means Job saying, because I'm not a sinner. <laughs> Maybe, right? But, but because I'm not alone. I'm not godless. He's saying, I have hope because I have God, and I've not only put my hope in him, but I've put my way of being into him. I'm not godless because I follow that God. And so even though this is happening to me, I will have hope. Though he slay me, I have hope. And listen, here's the deal about this hope. This hope is real. It ain't wishy-washy. You are well familiar with my wishy-washy hope. Every year, when the baseball season starts, I have hope. Every year, by mid-July, when it's time for the All-Star break, my hope is waning. As of today, I believe the Cubs are about 13 games out of first place. My hope is waning. They're about to trade off all their good players again. I got hope, though, they're going to turn it around. But here's the thing. I had that same hope last year and the year before and the year before that. There's only one year that it really worked out well for me. That was a good year. You remember, you were, you were here. Most of you were here for it. It was a good year. That's wishy-washy hope. Right? I'm supposed to cut the grass today. I, I really hope it, I really hope it doesn't rain. You've got things that you hope for. I know you do. I hope he recovers. I hope they love me. Man, I hope he comes home, comes back. I hope the kids will return to the faith that they were raised up in. I hope my significant other starts to love Jesus as much as I do. I hope the kids are okay. I hope the cancer's gone. I hope the check clears. We all have hope, right? We hope for things all the time. But that kind of hope 
It's not constant. And it doesn't always work out. I would imagine that all of you have hoped for many things that didn't happen. Some of them were small. Some of them were huge. When they're small, it's sad and annoying and we move on. When it's huge and it doesn't work, we're devastated. And we sit in that grief and we sit in that sorrow and we live there for a minute because our hope failed us. But that's not the hope that Job has. I mean, Job hoped his kids would be okay. He hoped the boils and the sores would have healed themselves. He hoped his friends were better. He hoped his wife probably would have been nicer than telling him just to curse God and die. I'm sure Job had a lot of hopes that didn't happen, but that's not the hope that he's counting on. And you've got a lot of hopes, and some of them work and some of them don't, but that's not the hope that you need to count on. Though he's slain me, Yet, I will hope in him. This is the hope that David talks about. Is he hiding? He's hiding in a cave. They're trying to kill him. Not because he did anything wrong, but because God said to him, Saul is wicked. Saul has abandoned me. I have rejected Saul as king. David, I've made you king. You're going to be king. Not Saul, not his family, you. And Saul found out about it, and Saul wants him dead. And so David is hiding out. God said, David, you're going to be king. And now David is hiding in a cave. But he has hope. Here's the hope. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Listen, this is the hope we're talking about. This is the hope that is an anchor for your soul. This is the hope that does not quit. The world people in the world, circumstances in the world, they will fall short. They will. But God doesn't. Right? This is the reality. This is the truth. Right? We've got people. People will fail to love us well. God is love. People will hurt us. Circumstances hurt us. Disease hurts us. But God is our healer. People might be dishonest, but God is the truth. People change. God never changes. Situations, things happen. We feel betrayed, but but God will never leave us or forsake us. Listen, the world is broken, and in it there will be problems. And yes, we mourn, and yes, we sit in it. Though he slay us, though, we will have hope. Our hope is an anchor that always, if we, if, we, if we let it loose in Scripture, it will always pull us back to God. See, that's what will happen. When you drop your anchor in the Word of God, that hope will always pull you back. Yes, you'll wallow. Yes, you'll despair. Yes, you'll have sorrow. Yes, the grief will happen. Yes, it will be overwhelming. Yes, you will wonder how today could get any worse and how tomorrow could get any better. It won't make sense to you. Though he slay you, 
when you have that anchor dropped, yet you can still hope in him. Why? Because you're not godless. Because you've got him and you follow him. See, this is the reality that Job is, is resting in. So we hold tightly, without wavering, to that hope that we affirm because God can be trusted to keep his promises. And what are his promises? His promises are that he has got us now and for eternity. These are his promises. Can I, can I encourage you? You have got, and when I say got to, I mean got to. As a counselor, I'm not supposed to like should you. Like, they're like, don't should all over people, right? Don't tell everybody what they should do. It's a thing. I was in that class, right? There was also one, I'm going to say this because, well, I've only got a few weeks left, so I got to get it all out of my system. Same class, right? When they, they don't want you to tell people what they should do or what they must do, right? So they called that one masturbating. Um, so stop doing that too. So I don't want to should all over you, but as your pastor, I'm going to. You should meditate on this. You should love this. You should know it. It is your lifeline. If you do not, it is real darn difficult to be anchored. It's real hard to hold tightly to the hope that we have if you are not in and knowing this. And you're like, Matt, I really struggle to meditate on the word of God. I really struggle to meditate on the word of God. I know that you do. You're like, I don't know how to meditate on the word of God. Sure you do. You know how to meditate on your worries. You think about them over and over and over again. Right? The one thing that you worry about, you just play with it in your mind over and over and over again. That's meditating. Just meditating on the wrong thing. Right? Like, like your grief, your despair, the thing that, that causes you all the angst and the pain, you think about it over and over and over again. That's what you think about when you lie in bed at night and can't sleep. I know that. I do it too. You know how to fixate on those things. Listen, then you know how to meditate. All you're doing is replacing one with the other. Let me, let me encourage you to start here. You're like, Matt, it's hard to meditate on the word of God. I know it is. So when you're worried, just replace that worry with this thing over and over and over again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. Start there. And there's a lot more to meditate on. But start there. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how hurt I am, no matter how much sorrow and grief and pain I feel, I can have this. I can have this. God loves me so much. He sent his one and only son so that when I believe in him, I will not perish, but I will have eternal life. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Listen, I need you to be in the word of God because it's in the word of God that you experience God's presence. See, here's the deal. Even when God is silent, even when God is silent and he's not giving you the answers you desire, 
He is giving you something better. He's offering you something far better. He's offering you himself, his presence. Job asks 25 times. 25 times Job asks why. Why? Why, God? Why, God? Why? 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 Here's the deal. What Job thinks he needs is an answer to the question why. What Job really needs is just to sit in God's presence. Think about this. What if? What if God knew what you needed more than you did? What if God knows what you need more than you do? You think, you think that you need answers. But what if you just need to sit in his presence? Go back to that little boy sitting on the floor in the cafeteria, crying over the brokenness. Right? He didn't need an answer from his father. He just needed to be in the presence of someone that was over him, of someone that loved him. That's all. We want answers why. Sometimes why, though, isn't the deal. It's God's presence. And we see this here. Let's look quickly through this. Uh, this is Job in chapter 23. Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me. I would say why and he would tell me. Would he vigorously oppose me? I don't think so. I don't think he would press charges against me. Because I am upright and I can establish my innocence before him. And I'd be delivered I'd have an answer. He says, but if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse. Here's what's happening. Job is basically connecting two things. He's saying he won't answer me, so I don't think he's there. He won't answer me, so it feels like he's not present. And you get that, right? We're like, why, why is God silent? Why won't God answer me right now? And it feels like maybe he's abandoned me. But then here's this great truth. No, he hasn't. He may not be answering you, but he is still present with you. He knows the way I take. And when he's tested me, I will come forth as gold. See, this is what Job's saying. Job is saying, look, I... I can't see him. I can't see him, and I keep asking why, and I keep looking for answers, and I keep asking for all of these things, and I keep looking around, and I keep wondering, why, God, why, why, why? God is quiet. And so I'm not sure he's there except this. He knows the way I take. And when he's tested me, I will come forth as pure gold. He knows where I'm at. This is Job saying, I feel like he's not there because he won't answer, but I know I know he is. I know he knows. He knows the way I take. He knows what I need. He knows what my hurt is. He knows how I feel.
you may want answers from God. You may want answers from God, and I get it, in the midst of something hard. And he may not give them to you. We're going to see how that plays out next week with Job getting some answers from God or not. But even if he's not giving you answers, here's my promise to you. And I can make this promise to you because God makes it himself. He will give you his presence. He knows the way you take. He knows. He's not far away from you. And in the word of God, we have the anchor that holds us close. So when God is being silent, there are a few things that you can do. One, you can go into his presence in prayer. When God is being silent, dig into his presence in prayer. And I'm not talking about platitudes. I'm talking about real, authentic, gut-wrenching prayer. If you are mad, tell him that you are mad. If you are confused, tell him that you are confused. If you are a hot mess, tell him. If you are in despair, tell him. He knows anyway. Tell him. Real, honest prayer. Go into his presence in his word. Meditate on it. Love it. Spend the time. You're like, Matt, I can't memorize scripture. I know. I mean, you do know like all of three seasons of The Office. Maybe you're like, nah, not me. I don't know the office. Find friends. Whatever it is. Meditate on his word. Know it. When he's quiet, right? Dig into his presence by walking in his ways and not departing from his commands. Keep doing what you know he wants you to do even if you don't feel like it today. And treasure his words over everyone else's. Because some people, well-meaning people, will tell you to curse God and die. They'll tell you something that's wrong. They'll tell you some bad information. Who knows, right? Their hearts are good. They're in the right place they aren't giving you the best advice. But here's my encouragement to you. Treasure his word over everyone else's because he is present and his words matter. His words are an anchor. See, and that's what Job does, right? That's what he does. He says, when he tests me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. This is Job saying, listen, I know, even though it doesn't feel like it, because he won't answer me, I know that he's present. And I know that when all is said and done, and I am done being tested, I will come out as pure gold. Why? Because I am still here. 
I'm still walking in his way. I'm still doing what he would have me do. I'm not departing from the commands of his lips. And his words, his words I love more than bread. So here's my encouragement to you. As, as, we, as we get ready to, to finish this up, it, my encouragement to you is, is that, listen, the, the, the furnace is real. The fire that you find yourself in at times, and again, maybe this is all academic for some of you because you're like, man, I got nothing, nothing bothering me. So maybe it's just purely academic. But if it's real for you, here's what I want to say. You can trust God. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, right? Take heart. When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows. He knows how long and he knows how much. Trust him. He may not tell you why, but he will give you his presence and you can have hope, real hope. Hope in God. Now, what happens when you're in the fire, though? What happens when you're in the furnace? To a degree, that depends on you. You can get burnt, you can get bitter, or you can lean in. Eight and a half years I've been serving as a pastor, as an elder in a church for um, probably a, a good eight years prior to that. So in, in this church leadership role for, for decade and a half. And in that time, I have seen people when the going gets tough, they get burnt, they get bitter, and they go away. And I have seen others, when the going gets tough, they dig into the presence of God. And it doesn't make it any easier, but they make it through. When it's hard, stay connected to the presence of God. Prayer, in his word, in his community, and by following his ways. Because I promise you there will be another side. And that the butterfly will end up being a beautiful thing that you can reflect on for a long time. Doesn't make the pain less, but it makes the outcome real when you dig in and follow in the presence of God. Let me pray for you, and then we'll call it a day. Thanks for being patient again. Heavenly Father, God, we love you so much. We thank you. We praise you. We love you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for, um, in your word, giving us these very real topics that we can understand and deal with. Thank you for, for confirming for us, God, that the pain is real, and that when we feel it acutely, that that's not bad. That our pain deserves to be felt that our grief deserves to be felt. But God, in the midst of it, your word tells us that we can have hope in you because you are greater than our pain. So Father, help us. Help us to have hope and faith in you in the midst of these difficult things. Help us to spend our time when you're not answering why, digging into your presence. Because God, if that's where you're putting us, you are putting us there for our own benefit. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for who you are and for everything that you do for us. We thank you for the blessings of your word. We thank you most for your son, who through him and through his death 
and resurrection, God, that we can be reconciled to you. We love you and we praise you. Amen.